You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Heard is a collaboration between the Hungry Dudes, Nick Drinks, and the Detroit Optimist Society. Each week, we interview industry professionals about issues related to food, beverage, and hospitality. Please take a moment to subscribe to Heard through the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, SoundCloud, or however you subscribe to your podcasts. Write a review and let us know what you think. For additional content, including awesome videos and photos, visit HerdPodcast.com. Like Herd Podcast on Facebook and follow at Herd Podcast on Instagram. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this week's episode of Herd. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I'm Joe Hakeem. Tonight, I'm joined by Nick. Hello. Jason. Hello. And the owner of Eli Wine Company in Birmingham, Eli Boot. I'm delighted to be here with you, Jason and uh, uh, Nick and Joe. Thanks, Eli. Nick, mm. let's start in with, uh, with today's news, something you're kind of upset about. Uh-oh. I mean, it's it's less upset and more just kind of like, what what is the plan kind of thing. Uh-huh. So um, I, I, I enjoy myself some Taco Bell. I, I like the high end of food and I like the low end of food. And Taco Bell is one of my one of my things that has gotten me through sometimes, either be it just straight up I don't have any money or I don't have enough time to go to like for a proper restaurant. I mean, if that's the high end of food, what's the low end of food for you? <laughs> no, I'm saying I like high end food <laughs> oh. and that is on the other side of the spectrum. I see. And what I drink was that? that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's interesting is you bring up drinking is uh, they have a very limited number of these cantinas that are open across the U.S., um, the first one kind of near us was in Cleveland, and I got to go to the press opening for that, and that was a lot of fun. And then Royal Oak had one announced last year, and so I was really excited about it, um, knowing that it's just kind of a fun, dorky concept, that it's like slightly upscale, slightly upscale Taco Bell with some beverages. It's like beer. It's um, They'll do slushies with some uh, like tequila in it. And there, I think there's some wine kind of hiding if you ask really nicely. Is the upscale just a decor or are there food, no, there's like food sh- items? No, there's like shared plates. So there's oh, like kind of like – it's a slightly different I didn't menu. realize it's, that. For the most part, it's the same combination of ingredients. But they're presenting it in like a, hey, you can sit down with some friends, grab some drinks and eat. So they're not trying to like compete with restaurants per se. It's just something different. And what was crazy is they opened in Royal Oak without a liquor license. And it – what everyone kind of said is, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. So they had the the meeting yesterday at the city, and the city said no. The uh, police kind of came in and said, like, you know, hey, we think it's going to um, kind of put an undue burden upon the, uh, the police force because of kind of the increased alcohol and consumption and potentially the audience that it's going to bring. And it's interesting to see the debate. So, you know, all kind of the major publications have written about it. The Free Press has written about it. The Tribune, Eater. And the comments are largely, you know, like, what's up, Royal Oak? They, they don't think it's a good move. Um, there's also – there's some interesting comments that some of the commissioners have made that were quoted in these articles. Yeah. You, you I, 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 pull, I pulled the quote up. Okay. So the, the article – was this in the – this in the Tribune. That was the, the one I shared was Tribune. Tribune. Yeah. Um, so the article finished with this quote by the city commissioner um, who said, I still think this Taco Bell Cantina uh, is an establishment run by low-wage people working behind a counter. Um, and I think – so it, So now that we've analyzed it over a couple hours, it, take apart the low-wage for a second because that's kind of a little bit of a dig. But I think the counter, the counter thought there was that if you're serving alcohol from behind a counter – that potentially you're not as in touch with your consumer because you're not watching their consumption. I, I think, oh, but the low wage part's important, it, not, not no, just it, because no, of the. It totally is. But but I but I also think behind the counter and low wage equals like don't care. That that's what I think is the implication yeah, there. Yeah. More more than you know some of the, some of the comments were racist or classist, where where it might be in mm-hmm. some regard. But however, the the bottom line is when you when you're working behind a counter, you're getting paid. Minimum wage or sure. whatever, the, whatever they're paid, um, <clears throat> there's less caring involved, no. and, and they yeah. don't learn about. They're not learning about the, the alcohol per se. They're just kind of letting someone. You know, if someone comes to the counter. I want to 
Mountain Dew slushy with vodka and person's gonna be like, okay, whatever. Yeah. Are we do we know whether they were planning on being like I mean people have to get tips certified? That's, that's the next thing. Training, so right? they had when the uh police brought that up, they came to them with a number of concessions saying that hey, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. I, I have to assume that's one of the things. Because even when you look in a restaurant environment, fare. yeah, the like, the bartenders are more, one of the more higher paid positions. And I feel like with that higher pay comes the responsibility that you are in charge of making sure these people are safe. So I'm hoping that there's some of that responsibility. That are we sure? Was first. that just an assumption on the part of the commissioner or whatever? Because I mean, theoretically, I mean, alcohol is a high margin thing. Sure, so the sure. cantina, it's not guaranteed that they were low wages. I mean, if I was a business owner and I was thinking, well, I'm going to be able to sell these alcoholic beverages at a really high margin, maybe they were planning on paying, paying more. more, investing a little bit more in the in the staff or whatever. So I wasn't at the meeting. I, I actually kind of wanted to go and talk on Taco Bell's behalf because I think it adds a very fun, unique component to Royal Oak because I feel like Royal Oak's become a little stagnant. And I thought that would add some interest to the the space. Um, unfortunately, it seemed like it was a five to two. So there were you know definitely five com- commissioners that talked against it. And they one actually commented on my Facebook page saying it's not the type of restaurant we're looking to get in Royal Oak. And when I hear stuff like that, then I think, you know, when I talk to restaurant owners, they're like, oh, you know, Royal Oak's kind of difficult to work with. And when you see something like this happen, like as public as this is, you're like, oh, maybe they are. So many years ago when Blackfin, uh, oh, before they opened and, and they were commissioned, they were um kind of canvassing the commission, they they told them that they were going – there's a particular ratio that you have to meet food to beverage from what I understand. And they told For them – For certain licenses. Right. Yeah. And they said the ratio is going to be essentially 50-50 with food, food to uh, drink. Mm-hmm. It ended up being like 90-10 drink to food. And um, I heard that at that point that the, the Royal Oak kind of felt like they got burned on that. And um, now so Blackfin's they've gone. Been, they've been a little more overly protective, maybe. P- possibly. Um, I mean, aside from that, there's this. There's a lot of licenses down there. This mm-hmm. is 45 in the 45. Yeah, yeah. And that's not all of Royal Oak, right? That's just that little area around there. I don't know if that's downtown or if that's all of Royal Oak. Okay. Again, I've I've also been. This article came out, you know, three four hours ago. So I've kind of been processing this half on a drive home and half, um, you know, kind of at the end of a bunch of client meetings. Yeah. So there's still a little more to dive into this. And kind of what I said on Facebook is, hey, there's some stuff to unpack here. Right. And kind of look at this more. So. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. It's, Stay tuned. It's an more. interesting concept. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Eli. Here, here we are. No, Back. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds um, fascinating. There are um, some gra- congratulations in order. You were just named one of the five most influential wine shops in the country by Thank Punch you, Magazine. Wow. Thank you, Joe. Th- that's incredible. Thank you. And then uh, you were saying that the writer or the the wine critic for um, Punch is actually a former San Francisco. Is that what you said? Uh, San, San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah. So he, he this is not just away. a you know Joe Hakim internet blogger. <laughs> no, this, this is, is actually a yeah. No, this is a, a bona fide uh, a great magazine, but also it caters to the industry itself, the mm-hmm. beverage industry, uh, whether it's wine or or other beverages, and uh, um, they do a very thorough job, and they get the attention of the James Beard. Uh, and they were given the James Beard Award, so uh, they're they're very well respected. Now, when you when something like this happens, when the, uh, an article like this comes out, do you get a lot of publicity, like in terms of new sales locally, or are there people calling from outside of the state now? Or so this magazine, Joe, caters to the to the people in the industry. Uh-huh. So most of the attention that I would I received was basically from the producers and the suppliers ah, okay. because it creates this uh, credibility, uh, credibility yeah. and, uh, and it's a place that they want to be in. So uh, they're forthcoming and, and that's what I do. The most important part of my business, of course, is the customer. But the other important part, which is the sourcing itself, uh, Joe and I were talking about that. It's very important to be able to tab into what's being made there. It's very important for me to keep my ears to the ground in the places that I that I buy wines from. Um, and I try to sort it out and I have an editorial gesture that I do. And, uh, and there are certain points of view because making a wine is a point of view mm-hmm. that I want to bring to my customer. It would be worth my customer's audience. So in a, in a nutshell, that's what I do at the shop. Now you talk about Sourcing and like getting more credibility and more people that are, you know, producers can come to you then. 
you're running out of room. <laughs> That's so your space, um, and it's it's a it's a phenomenal wine store located in Birmingham. If you mm-hmm. haven't been, go check it out. But your floor to ceiling, you have like these like industrial. Uh, like rolling racks that are just filled with wine. You go in the back, you're filled with wine. You go in the champagne area, you're filled with wine. Can you do more? Well, going vertical is, is still <laughs> the cheapest way of, of stocking a floor. But but that said, I, uh, uh, I I do have a problem. But with that, I and mean, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Sure. You know uh, what all that means and what forces my hand in. Mm-hmm. Uh, accumulating inventory and therein lies the 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 challenge in the model that i that i have in my hands so first off everyone go buy more wine that's step one that will <laughs> Relief help me quite a my inventories <laughs> you can help me find a solution to this problem thank you <laughs> so you brought you brought with you um uh, five different wines Yes. And, we're, and we start. We're starting with champagne. So, can in, we talk in branded glasses, no less? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. In brand, yeah. That's that's true. Yeah. That's very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so why why the champagne? What's special about it? Well, let me tell you about Eli Wine Company first. Okay. Uh, we've been around for twenty seven years. Uh, the company was launched in nineteen ninety one, and they uh, decided to specialize in French wines because mm-hmm. that's what I knew most, and I felt. Even with that, it was uh, uh, underrepresented in the market. People knew about uh, the Bordeaux wines, the Burgundy wines, but there are many things in between that people didn't know about. So I wanted to really bring those wines to my uh, customers who are mostly my friends. And so here we are 27 years later. Um, Specializing in French also gave me the opportunity to dig deeper and deeper and deeper and it, of course, it made sense that I go there and I talk to the people to bring the wines here. What I brought with me today, Joe, is a selection of wines that I want to sort of uh, discuss with you, talk with you about every single bottle and what and how, uh, what part of my portfolio does it represent? Not necessarily in terms of the flavors or what it tastes like, but in terms of what I go through to be able to secure those uh, wines. We started with the champagne. Do you like the champagne, Nick? Oh, it's great. It has a, has a good yeasty smell, like good a, good, yeasty. a good bubble on it. Um, Absolutely. The, the other thing I want to point out before you go too deep is that when you dive this deep into wine, uh-huh. you become a master of history, of geology, of geography, of all these different things. And every time you go visit Eli to pick up a bottle, you get this dense amount of information from him. He knows so much about every bottle of wine. It's like this little trip down every little memory lane of all of his different bottles. So the fact that we have five, this is probably 10 hours of content right here Excellent. as you explain each of that. But Nick, you've also pointed out something that's really important. I'm, I'm very glad that you said that because uh, what endears wine to me is that it's the confluence of many things. You know, as we know, wine is a liquid geography, mm-hmm. so it starts from a place, champagne is being the place, and be that, beyond that, what ensues is talk about uh, farming, talking about agriculture, talking about chemistry, talking about history, uh, talking about many things that lead to what wine is. In fact, that's what made you decide to go into wine. I, uh, my education was medical school, hmm. and I decided to segue into wine, and that's what at I At what point of the process? In, in, in like, term. did you finish the medical degree? degree no, I, like, I, I need more. I, I needed to change course. Okay. And uh, so I, I went to uh, Georgetown University wow. for okay. medical school. And I decided to veer into the wine. And uh, But there is no, there was no illusion for me. Uh, wine is the subject that I was interested in. Mm-hmm. But what I convey to my customer is my business, the way that I convey it to my customer. I am ultimately in the information business. Mm-hmm. I tell people about the subject, create context, context matters, and that's what you are talking about, yeah. the, the, the richer context, uh, context. That said, every customer have their own needs and what they want out of anything. So uh, a question from a customer is answered by a question, and that leads to basically uh, giving them the information that I feel that they are asking for. Mm-hmm. So we can talk as little as possible. We can talk as as big as possible. Champagne, for example, here that we have, to me, champagne is the most civilized drink in the world. It's amazing. It's elaborated, and it translates many different issues. The one that I chose just to go back to the original conversation and what goes into sourcing, there are many, many, many producers of champagne. But also champagne as as a beverage, it has gone 
it has gone through a transformation to what's needed. Champagne 20 years from now, uh, ago, it's not the same as it is today and it will not be the same in 10 years from now. What people know of Champagne is typically the big houses, the Vouv Clicquot and the Moët et Chandon. And uh, so those are available in the market and enter Eli Wine Company. I didn't want to be redundant. I didn't want to bring those products or those wines. That's not my contribution. So I wanted to go and search for people who represent particular issues, and that's what I call the audience, to bring those issues to my to my uh, customer, and I share that with them. An example, what we're drinking right now, it's a, a champagne by the uh, by the name of Champagne uh, Eric's de Sosa, and he comes out of a highly thought-of area that's called Grand Cru, and this particular one has three different Grand Cru out of 17. So those are the kind of issues that, as I talk with my customers, I bring it to them. And also, as I explain to them those places, they learn to develop a filing system for the information. Mm. We need a filing system for the information. So that flavor that you described the way you did, it's going to have an address. That address is Eric Tussosa, and it has the address of the three different Grand Cru that's in the bottle. So for next time when you taste those addresses again, you'll be reminded mm-hmm. of the flavor. And I think the the thing that I, I struggle with wine as as much as I do try to try a lot of beverages, it's tough because they, they do, if you aren't really paying attention to what you're drinking, looking at that label, remembering the name, I feel like it gets very easy for them to all blend in together. That's right. And then all of a sudden you're just like, no oh, pun I had intended, some... or was yeah, that a well, pun? No, there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but to sit there and be like, oh, I had this really good wine, but I don't remember. The label was like black with some red specks on it. And then you get into that point where then you try to have to explain it and you become the decoder to try to decode that. That's for right. Them. That's right. And so you have the issue of developing those tags, mm-hmm. those labels, yeah. which is tied to the address. That's a, in, in a way the genius of the French, that they were able to attach addresses to the flavors. Hmm. The second part of it, which is just mentioned, as you contemplate that address, uh, it slows you down, Jason. So when you drink a better wine, you drink it slower. Yeah. It just forces itself on you and makes you contemplate. It really stimulates the gray matter. So uh, you see that in all those wines. I think there's this point that you talked about, like going to the producers, you know, finding these wines. There, there's these many grocery stores or wine shops have these huge selections of wine that that it's not possible for the people working there to know every single bottle, right? Or offered. What's that? They might even be offered to oh, taste right. those things, yeah. right? Um, and many times we have distributors as well. So when you talked about going to producers, are you, are you? You're working outside of distributors, and you're, you're you're essentially bringing these in. You're you're importing them yourself as well. Well, some some of it. Some okay, of it. but let me, uh, in defense of the grocery stores and, and yeah. the stores that offer many things, mm-hmm. th- there's a reason for that, uh, and uh, they're avoiding the issues that I'm dealing with. So I have challenges in in my model of business, if I can call it that. Um, as you know, that it's controlled. Uh, uh, commerce in the state of Michigan, we have to pay for the products that they come in. So it makes sense for grocery stores to buy from the local wholesaler and let that local wholesaler assume the inventories. And just Hold on. So when you say that, so they're not actually buying the wine? The grocery stores, they do. Okay. They buy the okay. wines, but when, they want, when the wines arrive, they have to pay for it. It's it. a COD yes. okay. business. Yep. Yep. And the uh, in, the wholesalers in the same position. They don't want to sit on inventory, right. so they, they buy what they need and they streamline the selection or of their wines. So they may be dealing with many importers, but only few wines from each importer. So enter what I do is I instead of uh, looking at portfolios of wholesalers or importers, and I said I want to tap into that conversation that's called wine at the source. I talk to those people on a daily basis. I spend hours every morning talking with people. Again, I specialize in French and Spanish, so I spend time on the phone to talk to them. I know what I want to bring in. So a lot of those wines have existing importers in the U.S., and maybe those importers have a relationship with local wholesalers or maybe not. If they do, I request that I bring in the rest of the portfolio and some wholesalers work with me and some don't. Mm -hmm. If they don't have a wholesaler, 
I bring him in and I suit him with a, a friendly wholesaler with me. And that accounts for some of my inventory. Some of my other inventory that I buy directly, but I still have through, I have to go through the same maze, which is the importer and wholesaler path. And so, but when I do that, and all of the wines that I just described, I have to assume the inventories as I buy them once a year. Many, many wines that I buy, I have only one shot at it. So, for example, this right here, the champagne that we've just had, mm -hmm. uh, I buy it twice a year. That's I'm only offered two chances to buy it. The next red wine that we will have, which is made in the Languedoc-Roussillon area, we only get 40 cases for the whole U.S., and I have to assume the inventory. So when you say that. we, so you're buying the inventory for the whole state? Uh, that's the, uh, the whole country? Uh, yes. It's, okay. uh, when I say we, it's the editorial we. Okay, got it. So, hmm. But that's 40 cases for the whole U.S. The, the, the people that make uh, the Domaine San Silvestre that we have, mm -hmm. uh, they make 1,300 cases, and they make 100 cases of the white. They give me five cases of the white, and they give me 40 cases for the whole U.S. Wow. So it's very rare. Now, why would I bother with it, in a sense? I do because uh, uh, this couple that makes the wine, it's Sophie and, uh, and her husband, uh, Gerizar, they uh, they're really well. They're very sought after. They they have uh, they make wines in a singular way that sort of that points the the path to the future of how wines are made in that area. That area, Nick, uh, the Languedoc Roussillon area, it makes seven times the amount of wine that the whole U.S. makes. That's how big it is. Wow! So as you taste it, um, you know there's a lot going on with it. Um. Incidentally, uh, you know, in all this sourcing, you know, I, I, I don't claim to have the Paragon palate, but I know certain constants that I look for in wine. Higher aromatics, balance, and good acid to make the wine taste fresh. Mm -hmm. That is the constant sort of the, the, th the holy tr trinity that I apply to all wines. The rest of it is trying to decipher the wine to see where it belongs to because I want the winemaker to be out, get out of the way. Um, many winemakers would, would tell you that uh, the wine makes itself. Most of the work is done in the vineyard. The vineyard is the farm. That's why I need to be there. That's why I need to walk the farm. I just came back from uh, Spain to uh, Sunday night. <laughs> and over a seven-day period, I visited no less than uh, 15 different vineyards, and I tasted no less than a couple of thousand wines. Whoa. So, a couple of thousand? A couple of thousand wines. There is a trick to it. I smell it once, I taste it once, and that's it. And you spit. And I spit. Yeah. And I think that's, if you're not in that circle, with the first couple times I feel like you're spitting, it's, it's a new thing for you. Yeah. Right. Because it's, you're, that, it, it's something you don't learn as like a kid to like taste your food, right. and chew it up, and then spit it out. No. So to do that, that is the only way you're going to make it through thousands of wines that's right. is by spitting. Because if not, you're going to be on the floor. And even with that, you uh, after a while, the uh, first of all, you, you get a little bit sluggish. Mm -hmm. You're tired, and, you know, because you're concentrating. And second, it's uh, it's uh, you you get acclimated in a way that you have to sort of find a way to um, go back to to the origin. And what I do is I smell my own hand or I smell oh, my yeah. own wrist to get back to the origin. So that's kind of like um, resetting your nose. By like smelling your skin or something like that, you're kind of uh, yeah restarting things. So. Yeah, but uh, so in all the wines we will have to today, uh, that's going to be higher aromatics mm -hmm. and balance and acid. The rest of it is it becomes an issue of nuances. Hmm. So the 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 wine that we're having is the uh, uh, please uh, help Jason help yourself um, and Nick Joe. Uh, so this is, as I said, uh, the Languedoc-Roussillon area. It's an area that's a merging area. They make a lot of wines. In the past 15 years, many young people have gone there and bought land. And therein lies the opportunity for somebody like me because uh, there's many new ways of doing what, they, what needs to be done to take it further. And this uh, producer is one of them right here. Um, that's, that's something that I've spent five years, six years investigating this area. So if you have lots of new people coming in, you're going to have to kind of put your detective hat on because there's probably some junk that's going to be out there as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So then, so 
maybe you're not necessarily looking for the old guys, but you're looking for the new guys that kind of have their head screwed on, right? And some of the old guys, too. Sure, I mean, absolutely. They're, yeah. they're, uh, let's not forget that tradition is not uh, mummified. Mm-hmm. It's something that changes. So um, I talked to them. I called it a conversation. I always ask the producer, who interests them? Uh, who should I be talking to? Who should I go and taste their wines? And it's unlike any other kind of commodity. When I establish a relationship with a producer, most likely I won't buy wines from them for three, four, five years. You taste the wine. You don't know if it's an aberration. It's something that you you have to – I have to follow through and taste more than one cuvee, one, more than one year to figure out what they're doing. But more importantly, go and visit the vineyard. And is this all from memory? Do you have like this extensive notebook or database? It's, or? Uh, it's mostly memory and wow. recording and recording as well. So not only are you tasting a thousand, but then yeah. you're doing this over multiple years. Right. So you can say, you can pick up, you know, this guy and say, yeah, I remember that a couple of years ago. You've definitely improved. That tastes good. Yeah. But it's not that hard, Nick. Um, not, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's uh, not unlike uh, you and your family. Sure. Uh, you remember the stories that your sisters tell you, mm-hmm. the experiences you had with your brothers, yeah. the uh, uh, experiences you've had with your parents. You remember every single one of them because there is something that ties them together. Mm-hmm. If they're disparate and they don't relate to each other, where they become, uh, if they're not forgettable, you, you tend to forget them to forget them anyway. So there's a, a sort of a logic to to the conversation. It's every conversation is built on the one before it. So how did you train your brain to do that then? Uh, it's the issue of the address is what I call the filing system. Okay. Everything has an address. Uh, um, there was a, a, a play that was uh, written by a, a Russian uh, psychologist. It's called The Phenomenon. It's about this a true story about this particular uh, woman that remembered everything. And the play is about how she, can she remember everything. And it turns out that she attaches a physical address in her hometown for every story that she hears and she remembers. Mm. So having that physical address, that's why I'm not, I don't mean to be glib when I say wine is a liquid geography. It is. And that gives you that label to remember. And that's what gives me the label to remember as well. So So, by then visiting, sorry, by visiting the vineyards, you're making that connection. You're making that connection. Absolutely. So is this, I mean, as you're visiting these vineyards, I mean, what is the, is this a competitive endeavor? Like what, what are you, are there other people out there visiting these vineyards that are, that you're competing with or? No, it's, it's not that. It's, uh, it's, uh. Walk in the vineyards with them, trying to understand uh, they're not presenting me with a particular wine that I need to buy and I have to make a decision. I, I walk, the, those vineyards are, are Jason, uh, they're like gardens. And when I talk with them, so for example, I was in uh, Saturday, I was in an area called Priorat, and I walked with this uh, gentleman, his name is Bai Ferre. He has 3.4 acres of particular uh, parcel. And the vines were planted in 1949, and it's a mixture of two different grapes, uh, Garnacha Piluda and uh, Garnacha Negra. And he has 3,200 uh, vines, and we walked around for two hours looking at every single vine, what he does with them. The, the grafting that he, uh, he has done, the, uh, you know, what's the problem with some of them, what are the advantage of the others, and all that basically to know, to know what the wine is like. And now, now you walk around his vineyard knowing what his wine tasted like previous to that, or do you taste before? Uh, typically, typically I taste, uh, I've tasted the wines already and I know what profile that uh, the wine has. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it's, uh, it's trying to figure out what aesthetic he aims to create. create making a wine is creating an aesthetic. And some people are competent to know how to achieve that aesthetic and some people are not. And you can only find out if you walk the vineyard with them. Ninety-five percent of the wine is made in the vineyard. So by them talking about the the vineyard and what they do with the vines, you discover if the wine is worth it or not. Eventually, it, it seems like mo- a lot of people in your position, wine shop owner, or you know, uh, however you how, however you want to distill what what you do and you know, like the kind of experience that you convey. Um, they're not doing what you, they're not taking that time. They're not going that extra step. Um, what, what made you go that extra step? At, at what point were you like, I have to start 
walking, you know, walking vineyards or whatever, whatever experience that you wanted to have with the, with the winemakers and the, the growers? Well, first, I think a lot of other shopkeepers are, they're doing what they need to do to make their business successful. I'm, I'm not claiming my model is the most successful, but to answer your question, because I do have interest in wine. I think wine translates many issues, as we said earlier, and a lot of those wines that I have at the shop, they fall into a paradigm that they articulate place and time, mm. the place being where they come from and the time being the year. So that's the other set of metrics that I apply. Does it articulate the time and the, and the place itself? And so that is Eli's editorial gesture. Other wine, sh uh, wine, or rather shopkeepers, they have other issues that they deal with, and I respect them for that. It's uh, just a different model. That's all, Joe. So can anyone appreciate your wines? Can you take the beginner all the way up to someone who's maybe tried all these things and is a little closer to your palate? Do you feel like Okay, so like the guy off the street can come in and be like, listen, I know nothing about this. Absolutely. Okay. Ab absolutely. Um, it's important, as I said earlier, to answer a question with a question to understand what they like, the flavors that they like. Mm -hmm. But when I recommend something, a wine for them, if it's been meant to be for the night, I have to recommend a wine that's drinkable. How much they will get out of it be beyond the immediate enjoyment is, of course, it's all contextual. Um, I, I tell you, if I take you to Rome and I tell you that we're going to sleep at the Colosseum, if you don't know the history of Rome, it means nothing to you. You, mm -hmm. you ask me, why, why am I in the middle of this uh, ruins? Right. You know, let's go to the, to another you know uh, more comfortable place. But if you know the history of Rome and the Romans, it would mean a lot to you. So context matters. Don't let anybody tell you that you know. Of course, you know the uh, the tests if taste good or not, because reality is negotiable. You by adding more to to it, you can see more into what you're drinking, or or for that matter, you know, eating. So context matters greatly, and drinking is making a judgment based on the moment. Mm. The moment delivers a certain snapshot of the wine, and there is also you. You are, at the moment, have a certain set of uh, tools that you're dealing with. It might not be the same a few moments later. So it takes more than once to really get an idea of what the wine is like. I think some of this kind of goes to uh, appreciating art, and you really need to know of how this stuff is made Absolutely. to know why you're kind of drinking some of this stuff. I look at like, you know, classical music. If you listen to classical music and you've never played classical music before, you're like, I, I don't get it. Painting, mixing colors, things like that. If you're, if you don't, yeah, if you don't understand kind of the basic for it, you're like, I don't, I it tastes okay, but I don't understand what I'm drinking. And I think yeah. that adds context to a what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, we all know the story, Picasso, people look at his paintings and they say, I can do that. Mm -hmm. And then so, they try, and they're like, oh, I can't do that. But it's that trying that helps you make that connection. Absolutely. And understanding what he means yeah. uh, uh, as an artist for, for the whole uh, conversation that's called art as well. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, fascinating. But let me tell you, um, uh, bringing the issue of drinkability and, and all that, of course, I said, you know, what matters is balance. But there, um, my my collection of wines they tend to fall into two different categories: one that's immediately drinkable, and the other one, the wine that I mentioned earlier, that it it, it sort of delivers time and, and place. And we're going to try a third wine now. That with time, that's a wine that's built, and it articulates that place and time within a few years. So people come in to buy wines maybe to just put aside. They don't drink them immediately. So that's another uh, sort of direction of my business, the wines that people can forget about for a little while and hopefully they will be rewarded. So let's try this wine right here. It's a Burgundy. And I think uh, maybe the champagne glasses. I went back to the champagne and now I'm smelling chocolate and hazelnut. Oh, you are? So, yeah. That's fa fascinating. Fascinating. So this is a, a, a Burgundy. It's The type is called Bone Tyrone. And made by producer Albert Moreau. And it's the vintage here is 2002. And uh, that's the. You know, I start. told you to bring cheap wines. <laughs> so it was bottled in 2002? Well, uh, you know, or... uh, Nick, that's the other uh, issue is the issue of what people call value. Okay. And, uh, and I'm going to pass this on to you, uh, Joe. 
Here we go on the next. The issue of value. Um, most of the time we define value in terms of uh, dollars. But um, value sometimes, it has another definition. It's uh, attaining um, something that uh, you could spend dearly on, but it tends to be singular and unique. So um, to be able to sample a wine that can transport you to those places, that's really priceless in a way. So it's, it's a value at any price. And so this is 2002. Does that mean it was bottled in 2002, or what does the vintage so, wine mean? So this is the vintage 2002. The wine was harvested in mid-September, so, um, so the third week of September here, and it comes out of an area called Bone. Um, wine or grapes, they need 100 days to mature from flowering to harvest time. So it's about 100 days. And the story of the wine is the story of the 100 days. It goes through fermentation and second fermentation, and after that it gets uh, put in barrels to age, in this case, and then after that it gets bottled. So it was bottled sometime uh, in the fall of 2003. And th that's born out of practical matters because uh, they, they made the wine and they left it in the barrels, by the next harvest, they need to they need the barrels, so they put the wine in in the bottle. So this was bottled a year later, hmm. and as you smell the wine, like stable smells, and mm. this is beautiful. Mm. Oh my goodness! Isn't that beautiful? <coughs> Just. Very complete, high aromatics, beautiful, and you can describe it any way you want, mm -hmm. but it doesn't smell like fruit. It smells like something else. Yeah. In the mouth, as it goes in, it just does what, what it wants to do. You just sort of wait for it to happen, and that's what's going on with this wine. So this is 2002, so 16 years later. That's the other side of my business. It's 80% of what I do is wines that people can wait on for a while. Okay. Now, you can drink those wines when they're young, and I think the experience will be missed because reward, people who wait are rewarded like we are today. So they continue to mature in the bottle. Yes. To a point. To there a is point. an arc to a point, yes. 2002, I think it's perfect now. You know, the improvement beyond this point will be incremental and become subjected to preferences. Hmm. So what is your average age right now of your consumer, of your, your buyer? They, anywhere from 25 to, uh, to 65, 70. And so my, so my father has a great wine cellar, and I know he's, he's good about cellaring them. Mm -hmm. for, for myself, who doesn't necessarily have that storage capability, do you see younger generations that are open to cellaring and open to buying stuff and hanging on to it that have that patience? So let's maybe get away from the word cellaring altogether okay. because that, is, <laughs> that's a, that assumes a space that's dedicated. Sure. Um, I've, I've rethought this idea of cellaring altogether. What I say is there's wines that are worth putting aside. It could be just in a, uh, any space mm -hmm. and waiting for them. But I also, for the younger people, I want them to have wines from different places. Um, I, I, the analogy is like having a passport with different visas in it. I want them to have wines from different places. Some of them are laid down and some of them to consume. And when they bring them out with their friends to share, they can tell the story. Not unlike opening the passport and showing that visa to an exotic place and telling stories about where they have been to and what they have done there. So uh, that's sort of the approach with the younger people, I think. That said, um, I feel that specializing, Joe, it allows me to uh, be in the forefront of what's going to come. Um, I'm not tied to any particular importer. I'm not singing the uh, sort of the, the tune that's laid out by the market in New York or mm -hmm. Chicago. Everything that I deal with, it tends to be the story of five years from now or eight years from now. Champagne is one of them, for example. The story of the Languedoc-Roussillon area, that's going to be a big story in the next five to eight years. So I try to bring to my customers all those uh, f futuristic oh, okay. trends that on the face of it, it looks like uh, uh, Eli is just a, a 
sort of go in a different direction <laughs> that nobody else is doing. But that's going to be the big story five years from now. Can I ask you, so this being bottled, vintage 2002 bottled in 2003, and you're saying that now in 2018 we're opening this bottle and it's just at the right time. When they're bottling it in 2003, do they know that it's uh, 15 years later? Like, how do you know without opening bottles every? Do you open bottles every year? Like, how do you know when it has reached that prime time? So there is a, a body of sort of notes. Uh, this is an area that just happens to be uh, that they've been making wines for 700 years. Hmm. So there's a record of all those wines every year, and every year has its own particular signature. And uh, they know that from previous experience that this particular year that's similar to an older year, I see. it took that long to come around. And uh, so I rely on that, but I also, I retaste. So here's, you, you're giving me the opportunity to taste with you the 2002 to recalibrate. And that's the other value that I have for my customers too, people that buy to uh, lay down their wines, they would say, Eli, w what do you think uh, is happening with this particular vintage? And I'll say, well, here's what I've tasted and here's what it's at. So I can give them sort of a categorical answer for a particular vintage for a small area. When I say a small area, bone here is a small area. But all the Cote de Bone wines I've gone through different years and I taste them all the time to see what they're at. Also, talking with the winemakers as part of the conversation. I ask questions. How, how is 2002 doing? How is uh, 2003 doing for you? And that way I can bring it to my customers. The challenge to, uh, as you may guess, is uh, that how can I concise it? How do I know when I'm just talking too much? How do I know when I'm talking too little? So those are the challenges. And of course, the other challenges, as I said earlier, it's uh, seeming like uh, I have products that they seem to be out of step with the market. Well, they may be. They might be out of step with the market, but because they are the trends of the future. That's the advantage of uh, specializing. Mm -hmm. you know? Now, with, in Michigan, you can discount wine. You yes. can put it on sale. Do you ever have that just like, ah, oh, that didn't work out. We're just going to kind of put this in the bargain bin? No, I I have to confess that's something that sort of I, I I've never had um, sales, uh, but that said, um, I offer prices when the wines arrive, mm -hmm. and when they're stored longer, I pull out that sure. discount. Okay, and I seem to uh, uh, be able to sell through, and I am I'm not a stockist. I don't just stock shelves. My model is really classic merchant. Well, and some of your stuff isn't even out. No, exactly, exactly. So what I do is 2002s, I pull them out of offering to the customers and I'm offering other wines. And when the time is ripe for it, I, I offer the wine. Okay. So I have that sort of, a, I, I wouldn't call it luxury, but that space yeah. that I can offer people many different wines. So it's, it's very um, uh, elaborate, but I'm not sure it's the right business model, but hey, the last chapter hasn't been written yet. We've done 27 years. That's something. That, that's, yes. <laughs> in fact, I always am fond of telling people that when I launched a business in 1991 and I told people that I'm doing, I'm specializing in French wines, my obituary was written day one. <laughs> so, in 91. In 91. So here I am 27 years later. Because I'm trying to think of the market right then. I mean, that was, um, was pre-Food Network. That was uh -huh. um, that was after Julia Child, so French was kind of starting. Mm -hmm. um, what else was kind of big? That? Big California market. Oh yeah, yeah. Big California market, sure. and there was uh, you know people looking for the the uh, sort of uh, very extracted wines, okay. and it's still the same. I think people are still looking for the extracted market. But that's uh, the younger generation, Nick. Uh, they are really uh, uh, looking for maybe fresher wines, mm -hmm. so they're. Uh, they're going my way in, in in a sense. They're looking for wines that they're fresher. They're uh, just they can smell them. If you can't smell, you can taste. And so I offer those wines. And, and I think it's interesting too. Typically, when you go to the grocery store, you buy something that you're going to eat within a week, maybe a month. Mm -hmm. So to go to at your store and say I'm going to buy this and sit on it for a year plus, right? Is a, is again not something you're used to. So that's there. There's just these these tricks of wine spitting 
hanging on the bottles that are just, I think, they're counter to some of the things that we're used to. Absolutely. Speaking of food, uh, uh, in Spain, there is an area it's called Galicia. Okay. This, spa- the, this area is known for seafood, seafood yeah. and uh, an amazing food uh, place. I, I, I'm, I'm quite uh, puzzled that the uh, uh, culinary wor- world doesn't know that particular area. We talk about the Basque country. Mm-hmm. We talk about Catalonia, which is very dear to me. And this is Galicia. This wine comes from Galicia, from an area it's called Ribeira Sacra. And it's a very small production by a, a well-known, well-respected producer by the name of Olujo Pomares. In fact, I had dinner with him last Friday in Barcelona. <laughs> but uh, And he's very thoughtful, and uh, him and his wife, Rebecca, and she has uh, come into uh, uh, this uh, property, 1.2 acres, and they make this wine. So they make about 400 cases of this wine. So I was able to talk him into giving us some of it. And uh, this would be great with any cuisine, with any food. Sure. Is Spanish wine, is it a natural extension of French wine? or Spanish wine, yeah. Do you have the Spanish wine? He handed it to me. I didn't get the Spanish wine. Where's this one? This is... That one? Perfect. Yeah. I'm sitting like, I'm still doing Spanish wine. Natural. Yeah, because you were you were you were specializing in French wine, as you said. So, how did that transition into Spanish, Spanish wine? Um, it's born out of practicality, because I I, I go to uh, France about four or five times a year, and so it made sense that I would also go to Spain. So I spent some time in Spain as well. So uh, when I was in uh, uh, Spain in uh, January, it's only one and a half hours. And I'm fr- uh, in France, the Côte d'Ocean area. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes sense that to do the two. Italy is a different uh, route. So we do have Italian wines. We just started doing Italian wines about three years ago. And uh, my manager, Todd, Todd Abrams, he's in charge of that department, and he's uh, doing a great job as well. Because you're also doing some Alsatian wines too, right? Alsace, yes. Alsace. Do you get into German wines at all? Then kind of no. Past there? Uh, no, no okay. and Alsace is uh, really different than the German wines. Okay. Uh, don't tell that to the French. <laughs> well, because doesn't isn't Alsace kind of both regions kind of overlapping? Or no? uh, right. The other okay. side of Alsace will be Baden. Okay. Which is in Germany. Got it. But uh, they have a different sort of mindset altogether, and their wines are a little bit different. In the way that they're crafted, yeah. I wish I want to capture your facial features right now because as you say that, it's definitely – there's some subtext happening right there. <laughs> but I do love Alsatian wines. <laughs> they're, they're great. you know. Uh, so this is Galician wine, an example of uh, – here we, we're going back to the idea of sourcing. And uh, this is somebody that uh, that is represented by a big uh, outfit out of uh, a national importer. Uh, the name of his uh, wines is called Zarate or Tharate. And uh, so his this his personal project, I was able to um, convince him into giving giving us the wines instead of going through the national importer. And I feel like Spanish wines have I've seen them mm-hmm. locally pop up a lot more. I'm probably because I'm spending more time at the Royce and things like that, which I know right. they have a, a great uh, Spanish selection yes, too. They do, yes, I would love to talk a little bit. You mentioned the Pirat mm-hmm. um, Ona. <laughs> because uh, my wife is a huge fan of Ona, and you have a personal family connection to it as well, right? Yes, it's uh, uh, it's my daughter, actually, Ona. Uh, so uh, this is a small producer, mm-hmm. Bly Ferre, his name, and he has uh, 12 acres, and uh, that's not a lot of land, and he makes wines for his father-in-law. And so we were able to, uh, and he makes 10,000, bo- 8 to, to 10,000 bottles a year. So we were able, I was able to convince him to uh, to uh, look at particular uh, mm-hmm. part of his land and bottle it separately under the name Ona. Now, also, the uh, the little piece of land that I said is three point four acres uh, that I was look, walking around with Bly, that's going to be bottled separately under the name Close Pititona. Pititona is a diminutive of Ona. So Ona, when she's grown up, we call her Pititona. Oh so this is called Close Pititona. <laughs> and it's going to be a really fabulous. It's going to be one of the top priorats. So uh, we've, we've probably killed four or five cases, our house alone. Thank you, Ona. And, <laughs> um, and when I came in one day, your, your granddaughter, right? Uh, no, she's my daughter. Daughter, daughter. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, when she, she was actually in there. 
Uh-huh. And um, it's her signature, right? Is the label? It's her uh, when she was four and a half years yep. old. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I, I can I tell you a story, Nick. This, okay. Joe, this is really funny because uh, she's four and a half years old, and I she knows how to write her name, mm-hmm. but she didn't know how to write Priorat, and she knew the numbers. So I had her sit at the dining table, and she's writing her name, and I wrote the word Priorat for her, and she wrote it. And I walk away, and I come back, and she wrote the word sexy. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, "What? <laughs> we have a painting, a painting by uh, by Steve, uh, by uh, Dick Goody. Okay. Dick Goody's at uh, uh, Meadowbrook Gallery now. It's, it's Oakland University Gallery, and he he puts text in his painting, and one of them it says sexy. So <laughs> I was relieved. <laughs> but thank you, thank yeah. you for because uh, she signed the bottle for me. She did. Yep. Thank you. That was fine. But uh, I, I, I will make sure that you and I will taste, and Joe and Jason will try the uh, the close pititona. The part two. Perfect. Yeah, the part two, exactly. <laughs> this is uh, terrific. So uh, you said you tasted about 2,000, 2000 wines over this trip. So what's the next step? You've tasted these wines. There's some that probably really piqued your interest, right? So mm-hmm. what, what's the next step now to bring them into bring them into the shop? So uh, 99% of them, they don't fit what I want. They make beautiful wines, but it's not what I'm looking for. Uh-huh. Um, some of the wines were, for example, with the producer that we have here from Ribeira Sacra. He showed me another set of wines that he's making. Uh, some of them are oxidative and some of them are are uh, aged on the, on the skin, uh, you know, so-called orange. And so those I have interest in, uh, in bringing him in, but it's going to take a while to bring him in because I have to, he doesn't make a lot. He makes 200 bottles of this, 300 bottles of that. And uh, so in time, I'll bring him in. So what I started saying is that uh, this whole idea of searching for wine, it's a process. I don't make decisions right away. And I watch and I watch and I bring the wines in. So out of the 2,000 wines, most likely I'll bring in no more than 20, 30 wines. That's it. And that's over a period of two or three years. And are are there wines that you, after tasting them, you kind of file everything away, but you keep coming back to ones, and you're just like, I, I need, I, I need to have that again. Or are there absolutely that like that special? Absolutely. To use that example again, Ulujio's uh, wine. Uh-huh. Uh, the oxidative when I tasted three four years ago, um, I loved it, but he didn't have much to sell. And I keep trying and I try, and every time I try it, I I really liked it. The other wine that really impressed me, and I were going in different directions here, but there's a, a producer that makes wine in an area called Bertha, which is right at the cusp of Galicia. His name is uh, Mario uh, uh, Rovin. And uh, I've watched his wines in Bierto, and I'm not, I was not totally convinced. And when I saw him last week, he had three wines that came out of the south, Andalusia. They're called Tierra, uh, Tierra de Cadiz. They're made, he was able to convince a great producer, Bodega Zulita, to make wines at their place. Those are wines that are similar to Sherry's, but they don't spend a lot of time on the yeast. And so they were highly attractive, and I decided uh, maybe I should be talking to uh, Mario and see if I can bring his wines in. And he makes uh, a total between the three wines. He makes 1,200 bottles. So do you have some fortified wines in your stash? We, we do. Okay. We do. Uh, there's uh, quite a bit of uh, what's called uh, VDN wines, Vendue okay. Natural. Mm-hmm. And uh, 80% of the VDN in France come out of the Côte de Roussillon area, the Languedoc area. So those are uh, Mori wines and uh, Reef Salt and uh, Banyuls. Okay. And so I have some of these and also, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the Venjon, the, uh, from Jura area. And I have Venjon from the southwest of France, from the, um, from the, uh, Galois area. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, it wasn't the, it's a Gaillac area rather. Okay. Galois is a smoke. Yeah. So how many blue wines do you have in stock? Zero. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't. Uh, have you tried one ventured? yet? No, I have not. There's there's one coming to Michigan soon because I've been talking to the producer. Is that uh, a real thing? Yeah, it's a blue. Yeah, yeah. like like uh, blue raspberry blue. I don't know if it's an artificial color or what's in it. It's got to be an artificial. I'll, color, I'll bring right? it because I'm supposed to get a bottle. L- lucky. So. What? <laughs> lucky you. 
Well, no, I'm just curious because <laughs> so, like mean, orange wine had mm-hmm. kind of a, a moment uh, a couple of years ago. But orange right. wine's a natural, right? Right. right. Blue wine doesn't. Are you saying blue's not? <laughs> <laughs> Let's withhold judgment until we try <laughs> yeah, it. Okay, you have to try. Fine. It. You have to have an open mind. <laughs> so we have one more bottle. Yes. Uh, so uh, the 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 last bottle here is uh, totally experimental from a place again in Galicia. It's called Gomarith. Uh, it's uh, the area in Galicia is called Ribeiro. And it's a sweet wine. It's based on uh, a grape. It's called Trechadura. And uh, the uh, I met with the winemaker three weeks ago. He uh, She came to see us, and she brought this bottle with her. So I want to share it with you. I'm, I'm sort of uh, on the fence with this one. You. Now, now, you said it's experimental. What makes it experimental? Because sweet wines, this is a sweet wine. Uh-huh. And they're not done in that area. Oh, so okay. This is a, it's a late harvest. And you'll tell me it has been open for about three weeks. But sweet wines you can keep open Sugar longer. Sugar and yeah. acid will keep it together. So how how will this differ from an ice wine? Similar concept? Well, ice wine, I think it comes from a colder climate where okay. the temperature has to drop to a certain degree. And uh, Whereas these are the hotter sugar. climates and therefore they're just letting them It's ripen. actually a cold climate as well, oh, okay. but it, it's not freezing. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So it's a more like a late harvest wine where the sugar is very high and the acid is still high because it's a mm. cold climate. Almost like, like a bitter, bitter orange. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not sweet, sweet, sweet either. No. no. It has a, yeah, it has a, right, a good balance. Yeah. You know, it has a good acid, but it has a, almost a, a lime sort of acid. Yep. Peel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of as a lemon zest or mm-hmm. that, but in, in the nose it has more like a, almost like a pit fruit, uh, a little bit of kind of a, not so ripe of a peach. So you and said a little bit of jasmine. You said you're not sure about it. What 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 what's the tipping point? Like what makes you uneasy about this? Because there is no tradition of making this wine ah, there. Okay. So in a in a in a, in a way it's anecdotal. So I'm not sure what they will do next year and the year after. I like it. Because yeah. I want to see the story continued. I want to see if there's intellectual firepower behind it. And when you when you talk about the, these wines being made, something experimental like this, is this a reaction to something? Are they – like is it something in, in, the, in the zeitgeist or something that they're right. – um, Most winemakers who are very competent, they tend to be inherently con- experimental. Uh, that said, um, I, I'm not sure that I would want to follow uh, them in that journey as well because at the end of the day, I, I have to create a different context still for myself. Uh, so I'll sit back and watch and see what happens. But exper- uh, experimentation happens in all great vineyards. And that's the other uh, um, thing maybe to mention here. As you know, the, we have an enlightened market, wine market. You know, there are many people that they go after certain, the latest in wines, and they tend to be, some of it is uh, trends. And and all these are good conversations to have, but, uh, you know, they are the parts of the whole, you know, uh, uh, that we we should be sort of looking at the whole as we look at the parts. So this is part conversation and other wines in the market that could be part of the conversation, but the whole conversation is what matters. If If you kind of look at fashion, how right. when you look at very high-end fashion, mm-hmm. that's stuff that most people aren't going to be wearing. But it's setting some of the trends for like kind of styles and colors that might that's, trickle down to the market. Right. So maybe something like this. It may. It might, it yeah. May, yeah, by virtue of the power of the producer. Sure, yeah. yeah Gomarith, you know, Coto de Gomarith, uh, they're very well respected and they make some of the greatest whites and reds in Spain. Hmm. So uh, you're absolutely correct. But, but the, these wine, I mean, this wine, is the, even though it's experimental, has a label. It's being made for Someone. sale. Someone. It is. It is. Um, so, so there is an audience for these wines too, just not – so I guess when you meet these winemakers where you're – they're producing for a particular audience and you're buying for a particular – you're buying for your customer, right? right. Or, you're, right. you know, um, that oftentimes doesn't overlap is what you're finding. That's true. Okay. So but uh, in, in this case, for example, Joe, they make 200 bottles. It's very so this is easy. one of two hundred. One of two hundred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's not that much, um, and there's all there's always a market, as you pointed out, and um, and they do it just because they can, 
And the people that uh, buy from them, they tend to be people who are winemakers as well because they want to see what they're up to. So in a way, it's experimental so other people can benefit. The trickle-down, not necessarily a trickle-down, is maybe a horizontal. So how do you deal with a customer that drives up in the Lamborghini that says, I want the most expensive Bordeaux, the most expensive champagne? Mm-hmm. What? How do you how do you treat someone like that? Are you okay. trying to educate yeah. them, or are you just trying to say, "Hey, well, first I, I gotta give them the most expensive, <laughs> 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 give the customers what they want." <laughs> but that said, I had a, a last uh, uh, holiday. I had a customer that uh, 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 had some great means, mm-hmm. and people sent him wines, and he came in and said, "Eli, I'm gonna get into wines. I gotta appreciate wines. So okay. recommend some of the best that you have. So recommend three bottles." So I did, and uh, and he said to me, uh, will I appreciate those wines? And I said, no. (laughs) (laughs) But if you try something less, you'll know it's less. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) It's always the climb down. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And and that's the the problem, I think, especially with kind of pop culture, mm -hmm. is you kind of have like this kind of middle ground, and then this just way high elevated with music. And um, movies and things like that, where they're like, you know, I want the the bottle of cristal and like all this kind of stuff. And I, I don't know if that comes to you because you're in a you're in a nice area of Metro Detroit. So I don't know if you're kind of do you become the target for some of these people? Not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily. And and my customer uh, truly uh, tends to be a, a lot more engaged. You are a good mm-hmm. example, Nick. Um, that they come in, and to me, it's not just a sale; it's cultivating a customer. Sure. So, and I've I have had people come in the shop, and I say, I have nothing to sell you. I mean, it has it has happened many times mm-hmm. because I I'm not in the same uh, uh, sort of uh, um, the I cannot service them correctly. Right. You know, if somebody comes in for a Cristal, which is a great champagne, but I don't have it, and mm-hmm. they I direct them somewhere else. You know, that's not again. That's not my mission in life yeah. to to do that sort of uh, you know uh, approach. Mm-hmm. You know, so hmm. I've resigned myself to that. I like it. I like it. Uh, so, but uh, so we have gone through the wines. Uh, some of them are experimental. Mm-hmm. Some of them uh, come from merging areas. Mm-hmm. Some of them, uh, I feel that uh, it's a very uh, sort of. Uh, deliberate and uh, thoughtful effort that mm-hmm. we should look at. And so that's, in a, in a way, that's what the Eli Wine Company does. A great journey. Yeah. Do, do you have like, everyday wines? Yes. I feel like because every, uh, everything we tasted, and I, the reason I asked kind of like a qualifier here is like these are all ha- are some somewhat challenging, right? You just drink them slow. You engage with them. Um, are your everyday wines similar – Along the similar vein, then are are they? Can you engage with them and not just like slam them back? Right, Right. Joe. All these are everyday wines that we're drinking today, because again, there is the issue of balance and something that you don't have to drink it to uh, appreciate the flavor right Mm -hmm. away, which is right in the theater of the nose. It's right there. The engagement. That's what stutters people. You know, if they want to think about it and and contemplate while it's there but if they don't it's very easy to drink so to answer your questions we have everyday wines in fact that's all I a lot of what I sell is everyday wines but again for every day I'm providing you with a vicarious journey as well that you're sitting there you can glass at the bottle you don't have to talk about it you can if you know what the Spanish wines it takes you to Spain if you know a little bit more about Spain Galicia it's going to take you to a Galicia uh, you, if you know the history of Galicia, there is the famous El Camino that goes through Beira Sacra, the sacred riverbanks. That all comes to your table through a through a sip, and you can think of it for a moment and move on to the next conversation about the kids and the and the uh, the other issues that you need to deal with. But it gives you that relief for the moment, and that's really important to me. Hmm. Um. Uh, we haven't talked. Uh, I just want to gloss over uh, food pairing because we haven't talked about food at all. In the next two minutes. No, well, <laughs> I mean, be, because I feel like uh-huh. I feel like there's a reason why we haven't talked about it. Right? Um, is it as important as it's made out to be? Well, first of all, I don't think all foods uh, or food um, can go with wine. Maybe I mean, Taco I've, Bell, I've, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've sort of. Uh, they don't um, have a frosé though. Or... <laughs> it's got to be. It's got to be coming. 
that said, I think it makes sense if you have an ambitious wine that you don't crowd it with mm. many flavors. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we talked about the 2002. Uh, you, you really want to give it a bit more attention and not crowd it. So beyond that, the issue becomes uh, what kind of foods will go with what wines. You're never wrong if you, again, to use the Galicia example, the wines from Beira Sacra, you go back to the tradition of that area. You don't have to copy the recipes, but you understand the basic ingredients. This is an area that's inland. They raise a lot of pork, a lot of pigs and pork, and they eat a lot of potatoes because uh, Orense potatoes are very famous from that close of that area. There is little peppers called Pedron peppers, which we all know of. They come from that area. So you can't go wrong by pulling that little bit of Pedron into potatoes and some pork, and that's your wine right there. Because they figured it out after hundreds of Absolutely. years. They're like, this is what it's, makes sense. Yeah. That's what makes sense. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure they've made a wine that didn't go with, well with the food, then they gave up. And they, and did, they shipped uh, to England or something. Yeah. Sh- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so Eli Wine Company is located? So it's in Birmingham. It's on Woodward at the corner of Woodward and 14 on the northeast corner in the FedEx building. Bright yellow. And we've been there for 40, exactly, the saffron yellow. And we've been there for four years, okay. um, and they will be there for the next uh, 25, 30 years. Great. Um, online? Online, EliWineCompany.com, E-L-I-E-W-I-N-E.com. Do you on Instagram, too? On Instagram? Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you guys ship? Yes, we do business in 14, 15 states. Okay. All right. Awesome. Eli Boot, thanks for being with us. Thank you, thank Joe. Thank you for the wine. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> of course. And thank you for indulging me. Thank you. Until next time, dine well, friends.